Hello, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and you're listening to Welcome to the Field, a podcast for child welfare workers, caregivers, and community partners. Today, we are bringing you the first episode in a very special three-part mini-series on race and racism with Tabitha Moore and Ken Hardy. Over the next three weeks, Tabitha and Ken will explore critical themes in race and racism as they relate to the child welfare workforce, caregivers, and children and youth of color in the child welfare system. Although each episode in this mini-series does have a distinct focus, our hope is that you listen to all three in the order of their release, as some of the concepts that Tabitha and Ken discuss will build on ideas from the previous episode. Today's episode will focus on race and racism in relation to Vermont's child welfare workforce. Here we go. Thanks, Cassie. Hello, everyone. Tabitha Moore here to welcome you to this episode of Welcome to the Field. I'll be with you for the next leg of our series as we dive head and heart first into talking about race and racism in child welfare. I'm fortunate to be joined by racial justice legend, expert, and marriage and family therapy icon, Dr. Kenneth B. Hardy. Dr. Hardy is a clinical and organizational consultant at the Eichenberg Institute for Relationships in New York, New York, where he also serves as director. He provides racially focused trauma-informed training, executive coaching, and consultation to a diverse network of individuals and organizations throughout the United States and abroad. He's a former professor of family therapy at both Drexel University in Philadelphia and Syracuse University in New York, and has also served as the director of Children, Families, and Trauma at the Ackerman Institute for the Family in New York, New York. Ken will be joining me for three episodes as we explore themes around these critical issues. This is our first episode. Ken, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. So as we consider identity and its impact on systems, families, and children, and of course the work we do, race and racism are huge topics right now. With the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, and Breonna Taylor, it seems that this moment is one in which people, white people to be specific, are collectively paying more attention to white supremacy culture and systemic racism than they have, arguably since the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, And people in power seem more interested in addressing and dismantling the systems and how they operate. As corporations, businesses, nonprofits, and government agencies turn their focus inward to ask what they can do to promote justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, or JEDI as it's known, Family Services Division here in Vermont is doing the same. Oftentimes, one of the first things administrators ask is how they can recruit and retain workers of color. Today's podcast focuses on the child welfare workforce and how workers of the global majority— which is another way to say not white, can survive and thrive in their work. So, Ken, my first question for you is that as we're considering the meaning of race and racism in child welfare, specifically for workers of the global majority or people of color, as I said, or BIPOC, which is another popular term, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, uh, we'll likely use these interchangeably throughout our our time together. Mm -hmm. What are some of the main themes or experiences folks should be aware of as they're entering the field? Well, I mean, I think that race is a critical issue. And I think just coming in and having some consciousness about that and this misnomer that we seem to operate from, which is that race is a people of color issue. I think race is an issue for all of us. Uh, You mentioned the workplace. And I think that one of the major challenges in the workplace is that um, when we attend to race, we tend to think that somehow if we are successful, in changing the complexion of an organization or system, that that is tantamount to changing the culture, which it isn't. And so that you can have high levels of representation of people of color. And you mentioned in your intro, just the pervasiveness of a white supremacist ideology and whiteness. 
and so you don't change the culture of a system simply by changing the demographics of that system. I think it's important for issues of representation, but I think there's a, per, a, a kind of culture that, that's invisible that really serves as the, you know, the arteries for the transmission of, of white ideology, which makes systems, larger systems that serve people of all races and particularly people of color deeply entrenched in an ideology of whiteness. And so I think just, you know, the workforce having some consciousness of that, I think would be important. Uh, I also think that there's a level of, it's kind of unspoken, but it is powerful that there's a level of acquiescence that's expected from from people of color uh, who join systems, uh, regardless whether it's profit or nonprofit or public or private. Uh, and I think just coming out, I think having some consciousness of that, that that there are these sort of unspoken, invisible, pervasive, ubiquitous uh, kinds of pressures around whiteness. And if you're not aware of it, it can be quite asphyxiating. Uh, it actually can be asphyxiating if you are aware of it. Uh, and so I think it raises the issue about why it's, it, that it's important to be able to have conversations about to a recognize the significance of race and then a willingness to actually lean in and have conversations about it. So you mentioned a couple of ideas that I'd love to have you talk a little bit more about. One was the ideology of whiteness and the idea that, you know, essentially add brown people and mix isn't what changes culture. Can you talk a little bit more to both of those those things, please? Absolutely. Be happy to, because I like I think that whiteness is a a kind of pervasive ideology and it's like most other ideologies it's not concretized it's not anything that you can physically touch but you certainly see the impact of it so i liken it to like it's like democracy and you know democracy has certain principles upon which it's it's based and and things that we don't think about like i had a colleague once who say to me who was actually born and raised in taiwan and uh she was pointing out that uh, how uh, we, you Americans, she said, really value your privacy. And, and she started pointing out these examples to me and it was quite compelling for me. It wasn't anything I'd ever thought about concretely. I've grown up here. Uh, and it's just this expectation of privacy, for example, was just an expectation I have as a way of being. And it was that, that I was oblivious to it, but she could see it and rather, um, stark ways because it was antithetical to the experiences she had had growing up. So I, I share that brief story because I think that whiteness is exactly the same way that that what most white people don't see whiteness and people of color may not see it, may not identify, but we feel certainly feel the pain and pangs of it on a daily basis. And so what happens is that when you have any institution like child welfare, at least on the institutional side of it, that has been historically populated by white people, that essentially systems that have been populated by white people become white spaces and white places. And once a place becomes white, it doesn't matter who actually comprises that system. It actually doesn't matter who runs that system because essentially the underlying values that shape the mores and the behavior of that institution are so deeply and seamlessly integrated in, uh, to the ideology of whiteness that it then becomes a major 
perpetrator, if you will, of systemic racism, because what happens is that then you have what I refer to as these sort of nefarious P's in organizations, policies, practices, and protocols that uh, become pure and treated as if they're poor, uh, pure, treated as if they are uh, racially neutral, when in fact, the architects of those policies and procedures, and, and we can think of our, our country the same way, that the policies and procedures are the architects of those have been principally white people, largely white men, largely white heterosexual cisgender men. And so their values are reflected in these policies and procedures. Then when a person of color disgruntled comes along and says, hey, you know, that was racist, the typical response is always, well, it had nothing to do with race. That's our policy, as if the policy is pure. Mm. And, and so I think the way, when, when I think about what the artifacts of whiteness are as an ideology, that it means that uh, the tendency to uh, place higher value on uh, abstract intellectual thinking than affective experiences. And so you have people of color in systems where they're feeling a lot, but then those feelings are pathologized and somehow they become reasons for why someone doesn't advance in the position of something that, you know, Tabitha Moore is too emotional, Ken Hardy's too emotional, as if somehow having emotional expression is problematic. Uh, I, I could fill up this entire time with examples, uh, concrete examples of whiteness, just in terms of this neat, the, this idea of organizing the world hierarchically. And so that um, I don't know that white people invented it, but certainly it is inextricably tied to whiteness. And so when you think about even within this group we call white people, there are hierarchies of, of white people even within the group we call white. And so if you are white and wasp, that you're considered more white than someone who's white and Jewish uh, or white and gay or these other kinds of identities. Uh, and you see that same hierarchical structure existing even among people of color. You know, light skin is better than dark skin. Um, that um, Asians and Latinx are preferable to black people. Uh, and so my point here is that one doesn't, a couple of things, just to bring this in focus, that whiteness is pervasive throughout our systems and in our individual, in our individual behaviors. One does not have to be white in order to be infected and affected by whiteness. It affects people of color just as much as it affects white people. Uh, and that there's a certain, uh, I liken whiteness to I don't know if the, the invisible fences that you see around the backyards of families where there's where they have pets and where that dog or animal will run to the perimeter of that yard and stop dead in its tracks. Mm -hmm. And it seems almost magical to the onlooker that, oh, my gosh, you know, there's nothing prohibiting his movement, that dog's movement. And yet they only go so far. Well, whiteness sets up the same type of guardrails in our society and people of color like you know, dogs in a backyard with a with a with an invisible fence. You know, get clear messages about how far you can go before you get shocked. Mm. And these are the invisible kinds of constraints that that the naked, unscrutinizing, racially neutral eye doesn't see. Unfortunately, mm. I, I really um, I'm taken both by that example and then that last thing you said. The racially neutral eye. How how does that come to be, the racially neutral eye? 
Well, I said that somewhat sardonically because I mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I should I have said the <laughs> I know the proclaim racially neutral because <laughs> I don't I don't think our, that when we when we claim we don't see race, then we don't see all of these issues in our society that are so incredibly racialized. And so I don't think that that there is a racial neutral eye. I think there's a proclamation of there being one, but I think it's part of our sort of idealistic notions about you know our our, our cliches uh, and our banter about race is so more so much more idyllic and romantic than the realities of, of the world we live in. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as you're talking about, you know, um, the need for us to recognize whiteness in child welfare and the ideology of whiteness and its pervasiveness, when it shows up in child welfare um, for the workforce, what are some of the, you know, you, you said that you could go on for days. I just, I, I would love to hear all of the different ways, um, you know, that in the examples that you were talking about earlier. But uh, could you talk for a minute about um, the ways that it shows up specifically in child welfare for workers? Yeah. Well, I mean, I just think that, first of all, uh, that in, I assume this is true in the great state of Vermont as, as other places, that when you look at child welfare, you when you look at child welfare system and it, like the juvenile justice system, these are systems that are replete with with children and families of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the while, we say that race has nothing to do with it. And, and so then there's a way in which that workers who are trained to work with populations of large populations of people of color, for the most part, have not been trained to work in communities of color that the ideology that they have been exposed to in their education, whether it's MSW or BSW or high school, it it doesn't really matter, that the education is oriented around whiteness. So I'm often asking when when I'm doing presentations in systems, um, and particularly I ask this of white workers, like what is it that qualifies you to work in communities of color or to work disproportionately with people of color? Now, the question is not to imply that somehow I think people that white people should not do the work, but rather it's a very different question I'm asking is what has prepared you? Because we live our lives fairly segregatedly in our society. And I've been on the academic side of things. I've been, I've had two different tenured professor positions. And so I, I know what gets disseminated in programs around delivery of services. And so what happens is I think the worker comes into this work with lots of unexamined preconceived notions about who they are as workers, but also who the people are they're serving. And so there's there's a disconnect there in terms of really understanding the context that people of color and, and what shapes the reality of their experiences. And so our way, our pet strategy for handling families of color and children of color is some variation of, of punishment. And it varies depending on whether you're talking about the juvenile justice system or child welfare. Um, that we know that um, that there's a way in which the worker is probably sensitive to the kind of trauma that these children have experienced. But again, the understanding of trauma, from my perspective, is fairly limited because it's looking at these sort of classical manifestations of trauma, which uh, have to do with child abuse and neglect and 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 um, exposure to 
um, substances and things like that, which I think are important issues to look at. But I don't know that I believe that there's anyone or any system that can work effectively, uh, and I think this is true of the child welfare system, that when you're delivering services to people of color, if you're not also attending to the impact of racialized trauma, from in my opinion, it doesn't matter how much you focus on the sort of family-based trauma. I think that's it's important to, to attend to that. But really, m- most families of color in the child welfare system and children of color are dealing with a unique form of complex trauma that is compounded by hyper exposure to racial trauma. Mm. And so what that means is that my discussion with a child or family has to extend beyond the parameters of talking about um, the dysfunctional relationship with the father uh, or abandonment. Again, like I think those are really, the, the part of me that's a family therapist, that those are really critical issues that to focus on. But it is equally as important to be concerned about the ways in which that child and that family have been battered and bruised and perhaps even abused in a racist society that where they are now the carriers of racial trauma. And I don't know that it ever gets attended to. Mm. And so that the same framework that's used to apply to white children in the system is applied to children of color. And I think there are aspects of that framework that worked, but I think it's limited when it comes to children of color because the issue of race has to be dealt with explicitly. Mm. As I'm listening to you talk, I'm, I'm really excited that we're going to be really diving into those um those concepts and constructs and how vital they are um, when I think it's our second podcast when we focus um, on children. But I'm thinking, you know, for me as a person of color who's worked with kids of color and that invisible fence that you were talking about earlier, as a worker of color, I often felt, you know, some of that um, that kind of reticence when working with kids of color or even with white kids and wanting to talk about race. I'm wondering, um, and, then, and then going back to your idea of... Um, the infection of whiteness, I think is what you called it, uh, that people can get infected with whiteness. So I'm thinking about our workers of color in working with kids of color here in Vermont or um, even working with white kids and that concept of the infection of whiteness. Um, what what was that? What do you think that that looks like or feels like um, or how does it manifest in the child welfare worker, in a worker of color? All too often, there isn't a fundamental difference uh, in how... Um, workers of color approach this work than white workers, because what happens is that in many systems, workers workers of color really don't have the latitude to really negotiate relationships with their clients and race the way it has to be done, because they that the successful child welfare worker of color will have to be white-like mm. or white-light mm. in their approach to the work in order to survive in that system. Because that, see, again, this is the, this is the multi-systemic nature of it. So if a worker of color is out there and, and seeing the nuances of race and racism and attempts to call that too vociferously, at some point she or he are gonna find themselves the receptacle of feedback, like, why do you keep focusing on race? You know, you're, your view is too narrow, you're allowing your personal issues to get in the way, that the system is set up in a way that it limits the latitude of even 
like that handful of, of workers of color who understand intuitively what the issues around race are. There is usually isn't the freedom to talk about that. So then what happens is that um, that oftentimes workers of color are are really boxed into becoming the purveyors of, of a kind of white ideology. I was just just on a call yesterday where I was challenging a supervisor of color who was castigating her staff of color um, who are actually working out in the communities in Oakland, California, about them not wearing hoodies and tucking their shirts into their pants. Now, you know, these are not executives at a desk. These are folks, these are black and brown people who are out in the community working. And so she's writing writing them up for this um, reprimand. And when I sort of interrogate that with her, she says tearfully, it's for their own protection because I know that they'll be judged uh, and that somebody's judging them. And so these are the kinds of pressures that exist for workers of color and where if, if, if we're not self-scrutinizing, we could find ourselves reinforcing uh, the very same ideology that, that white workers are because, almost because we have to in the system. There's also the issue that, that I run into a lot where workers of color who have had their own share of exposure to racialized trauma feel re-traumatized by the work because they're intimately familiar with it. And so for them, it's not just showing up on the job and doing the work. It's like showing up and continuing to have to deal with uh, difficulties and struggles and hardships within the work that they also have to deal with in their broader society. And like I had a woman tell me once, she said, you know, it's really triggering for me to go to work because it raises all these different feelings for me. I, I see images and mirrors of my own families and the families that I work with. Uh, then I have these days where I feel guilty that somehow I managed to get out and, and you know, uh, who am I to do the work? And so I think, there, and, and there's no, it really, in most settings, there really is no place for the worker to process and metabolize all these issues that come up, particularly around race, because we tend to take this sort of, racially colorblind approach to the work. Mm. And so I think it can be really challenging for um, workers of color. Mm -hmm. So then how do we change that? And I think here in Vermont, because, you know, Vermont's really white, we have like 94.7% white. So there's a good chance that even if we have, you know, even if they manage to sprinkle a few workers of color throughout the workforce, their supervisors are going to be white. The leadership is white, you know. So how do white supervisors then support people of color in the workforce, especially when they haven't yet been able to reconcile, you know, the fact that they were, that they have been taught in white ways. Well, I think it's hard. I think it's hard. I mean, and I've, I mean, I've worked with a number of organizations there, as you well know, in Vermont. And I just think that uh, the first task, like, I think it's hard for white workers and white supervisors to do racially sensitive work. If one has not come to terms with themselves as a racial being. And so it means that white people have to, it requires white people to recognize that they're white, which a lot, uh, as strange as it sounds, lots of white people don't necessarily. I mean, and, and as a slight aside, and that is one of the fundamental differences, I think that that 
children of color, if I use myself as an example, I, I knew by age four that I was black. And the fact that I was black was a conscious, deliberate conversation in my family. And it was perceived as preparing me for a world that I would go out into that may not necessarily warm me, embrace, embrace me as my family had. And so they wanted me to have that, that consciousness about not just who I was, but also how I was going to be perceived. And so in some ways, that children of color are socialized to be people of color. And white people are socialized to be people. So that there's... It, it, that white children don't go up in families where someone is saying to their child, you're white. And this is what this means. So when you think about just the context we're in, where people of colored lives are very pervasively impacted by white people and the very white people with whom they interact with are oblivious to their whiteness. I mean, that's a recipe for hurt and disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think for the white supervisor coming to terms with one, one owns whiteness and then asking oneself if i'm if i'm working with this person if i'm supervising this person of color how might our process not not declaring that it is but how might our process how might our relationship be shaped by the nuances of race at least to raise that question because i think there's a process of self-interrogation that's so important even if one doesn't know the answer i think the question is more important than the answer just to ask uh, might race have an impact on what's, what's transpiring here? And then I think that just like the worker who's working with the uh, working with children and families, irrespective of the race of that the, the worker, has to be the broker of permission in terms of talk, bringing up race with families. And I don't mean just with families of color. I mean with the families they're working with. I think the supervisor has to be the one who who gives permission to remove the gag order that we that we tend to be under in our society with regard to having conversations about race. Mm. And so this notion that uh, I'll wait until the client brings it up or I'll wait until the supervisor brings it up, uh, I think is problematic. So then how does the supervisor uh, remove the gag order, so to speak? Well, it's like, so in my writings, I talk about you know, the broker of permission. And so this broker of permission means that that it, it's not like as a supervisor, I'm not saying, okay, it's okay to talk about race here. I mean, that, that's one way to do it, but I, I, I don't necessarily recommend that. Um, but it, the, when one assumes a role of broker of permission, which I think that super, all supervisors should, all clinicians should, uh, people in positions of power and privilege, it, it means it's what you do. It's, it's through your deeds. And so that it, it's, I'm demonstrating through my use of self, a willingness to have conversations about race. I'm, 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 in the, I'm demonstrating to you that, I, that race is one of the prisms through which I see the world. And so if I'm a supervisor and I'm discussing a case with a supervisee and they're simply talking about the family, the family structure, I, as a supervisor, I'm asking the question, what race is the family? And by asking that question, I am, I am essentially saying to the supervisee, uh, race is one of a multitude of issues that I consider in this work. And it's okay to 
introduce race into the conversation. It also means if I'm a supervisor uh, and I'm white and I'm supervising a person of color that I'm, I might actually infuse into my supervisory process, you know, as a white supervisor, uh, I'm very much aware that you're the first person of color that I've supervised. Uh, and this is, you know, raising all sorts of insecurities for me. That's a way to be the broker permission where I'm self-disclosing, where I'm locating myself as a white person there. Uh, and I'm and I'm not asking you as a person of color to take care of me, to reassure me that I'm okay, nor am I asking you, what is this like for you as a person of color having me as a white supervisor? Because I think that places an unnecessary burden on the person in the relationship who has the least amount of power. And so I do think it's, but again, if I sort of, if I take a minute here to be a seamstress and stitch these pieces together, that it is very uncommon for a supervisor to make the, make the kind of disclosure I just mentioned, because that supervisor has been trained in a way that is deeply rooted in whiteness, which says that it's all about the supervisee. You don't self-disclose. You keep yourself neatly packaged away. Um, that you you keep this sort of hierarchical relationship in place. Um, and, and I think all of that's antithetical to doing racially informed, racially sensitive, racially inclusive, racially equitably, equitable work. I, I think that's just totally 100% antithetical. Mm. It's like it creates, a, it's not a similar vulnerability, but the supervisor then has a level of vulnerability that they wouldn't that the supervisee can look at and that's right. judge that's how right. they want to be in relationship to it instead of finding it out, you know, through, um, you know, it, it comes out inadvertently. Um, yes, that's absolutely right. Because and, and, and you said the key word that what that does, what I'm suggesting is that it builds a relationship and a relationship that's that's built on. Uh, a, a kind of reciprocity, a kind of we're in this together. Um, and and I think it what it says to that, and what it has said to me as that person of color sitting there, is I can let my guard down a little bit, that maybe this is a person I can trust, uh, and, and I might be able to traverse the racial divide here, uh, just given what this person shared. You contrast that with sitting with someone where I'm expected to talk about a case and race never comes up. And there's no uh, there's no indication for me as a supervisee that my white supervisor has any consciousness, not even remotely speaking, of his or her whiteness. Then what it says to me is that this may not be a safe place for me to bring up race. This mm -hmm. may not be safe to bring it up mm -hmm. because it's never come up before. Mm -hmm. We, we don't know how they're going to handle it. So if something happens, it, it becomes really difficult to trust that relationship as one that you can lean into. So as as we're thinking about this concept, one of the things that I find um, across the child welfare workforce here is that people, white folks, are willing to ask the question, okay, well, what race, you know, or races? Oftentimes it's when there's a person of color. So <laughs> we've been really leaning into helping people ask in all cases about consistently about race. But as um, they're either asking about race or doing their own introspective work, 
one of the things we want to do is prevent recursive thinking, which is, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, what are the ways race shapes me? I don't know. Uh, you know, I got to be racist, you know, it, but not that deeper level. Or in terms mm-hmm. of in the supervision realm, um, they may ask about the race of, you know, the clients and, you know, they're, they're doing that consistently. But now what? What happens after they ask about race, about, you know, just naming the race? Because, you know, we have this habit of exposing things, um, but not then taking that next step toward um, either reparative work or healing or, you know, really understanding what the implications of that will be. How, how, do, how do we get to that place? That's often the question that I get here is, okay, how, we, we know that racism is an issue here. We're consistently asking about race. Now what? Well, see that, and that, and let's get back to my earlier point. And I, and I think, and I really appreciate your question. It's a great question because if we're only treat, treating race as a demographic, then to me, at the individual level, that's analogous to the child welfare system saying we need more black and brown workers. Yep, um, it's the same process. Mm-hmm. And now that you have them, uh, then what? What are the necessary, how are you factoring this into how you reshape your culture? How do you use this demographic information to inform what you do? Because if I'm simply asking, what is the race of the client? Oh, okay, it's a person of color. And now I'm proceeding to do what I would, would normally do. Then finding that, ascertaining the information about race is, it, it, it's nothing more. It's, it's perfunctory, but but right. but it, it serves no viable purpose. Mm-hmm. I mean, so once I know, uh, so race is more than a demographic. It's also uh, an indicator of someone's context. And so so once I find out what race it is, I'm now asking myself, and how is race uh, one of the things? It's not the only thing, but how is race shaping? Uh, this family's process? How is it informing this child's behavior? Um, what, what are the signs of racial trauma that I need to look for? And now once I, once I get a sense about that, how do I recalibrate and redesign my treatment intervention engagement strategies to, to take into consideration race as a critical intervening variable? So if I'm asking what the race is and then not using that to inform what I do, how I am, and who I am in the process, then I think it serves no purpose. I I, I don't think it serves any purpose. Mm -hmm. It should be informing what we do. And so if it's not, then it is incumbent upon the person to do what? What do they need to do? Because like one of the things that I find is that people feel often lost. Like, I want to be racially informed. I want to be sensitive. I want to be thoughtful. How? Well, I mean, you know, I, and you know, I have placed a very high premium on like self of the worker work. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you haven't done your own racial interrogation, your own racial work, then it's hard to go to know what to do it's hard to do because i mean what i believe tabitha is that that this work occurs on a continuum that i talk about all the time and that continuum is that it moves us through seeing being and doing with regard to race i don't think we can do the work of race if we've not done the seeing and the being associated with race and so the seeing means what what is the work that i've done 
with my supervisor, within my department, within my agency, within my institution? What is the work that I've been intimately and passionately engaged in that's designed to change what I see, that's been, that's been instrumental in allowing me to see all the ways and places where race is so delicately nuanced in virtually all aspects of society. If I haven't done that work, it's hard to just get to the doing because what it means is like, what am I doing? Because I don't even see all there is to see. So that there's something that, that there's a process that the person, the worker and the system has to be involved in that enhances its visual acuity its ability to see race and the very nuanced ways in which it occurs. And so it means if I'm a worker and I'm looking through this prism of race, maybe it makes sense to me. I now I have at least have a working hypothesis about why these two kids in the same family who are biracial and one darker than the other is having more symptoms than the light-skinned child. Mm-hmm. I'm now thinking about the impact of race on that. And again, race not may, may not explain the totality of that difference, but it certainly is a salient factor that has to be considered. And so the seeing is about how do I change my eyes and begin to see all of this? Because I can't do anything about that if I'm not seeing that through the, the prism of race. And then once one engages the seeing, there's the being. And the being is about, I'm asking myself really critical questions about myself, my own upbringing. How did my growing up in a largely white community, um, having been in very few uh, racially integrated um, places uh, where I've never had intimate experiences with people of color, where I've never had the feeling of being the only one. How are all, how the totality of my experiences shaping how I do this work? What have I, have I really made an effort to do anything with the fact that I grew up in this family of origin where I heard the N-word used rather liberally all the time. I never used it myself, but but certainly was exposed to it. And what have I done with the internalization of that? Because see, I think that until one does this thing and it being, and I'm not just talking about white people, I'm talking about we all have to do this, but I think that I think it's a bigger task for white people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we can prematurely get to the doing. And I think sometimes that that's, that, that's my worry about the post-George Floyd era we live in, that we all watched George Floyd get murdered, and then suddenly we all woke up and we said, gosh, we need to do something. And I think it's, I think it's great that we've been motivated to do, but I, my, my worry is saying, okay, but what about the sing and the being? Like, because I think attempting to do it without the sing and the being is like shooting without aiming. That's, you'll hit something. I'm not sure you hit what, you're, what, you, what you intended to hit. And so that's the piece. And But if I can come back to whiteness, try to take this message back to a child welfare system. And what happens is that, that part of the ideology of whiteness is that you place a higher premium on product than you do on process. And so this race, racial work requires process. And what most agencies and systems will tell you is we want to do this. We want to have racially sensitive workers. We want to have a racially inclusive workplace, but we have to get our numbers up. We have to keep our senses. And so what happens is that the that the orientation around product always takes precedence over process. And so we can't we can never quite get there because to have the kinds of conversations you and I are talking about now in the workplace and having supervisors go through a kind of comprehensive training 
that's not going to happen in most organizations because you don't see that the bottom line is not nearly as concrete as it is um, when that supervisor is supervising 15 workers who have 25, 30, 40 clients, uh, that all that translates into uh, reimbursement dollars. Whereas bringing your supervisors or bringing your workforce along mm. does not. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure, because I'm sure people who are listening are probably taking in everything that you're saying as much as they can and trying to really, um, it, it's going to take a several listens, y'all, so you should go back now. Um, but the relationship between doing, seeing, and being, we can't just focus on what we do, right? We can't just focus on the product. Um, the need for self-disclosure in the supervisory relationship is critical to really understanding the ways that race is playing a role, but also for white supervisors of, of well, of anybody, but particularly of BIPOC um, supervisees is is really helpful in creating a vulnerable, uh, we're in this together type of relationship. Um, that self of the worker piece where we're really doing some deep exploration of self and understanding self in the larger context and understanding of race is really critical as well, I think you said. And then that we're consistently talking about race across every aspect of what we're doing. Um, I heard you say on the, um, I think it was kind of on a larger level, you were talking about examining policies, practices, and procedures. I think you may have had a different P for the last one. Um, and then I just heard you say moving emphasis, um, you know, again, from product to process. And I would also say relationship is really what you're saying too, product, uh, process, and relationship. Right. Um, so as I, as I work with organizations, as FSD is really trying to um, move forward in this work, I definitely see some areas that you've already mentioned that they could, you know, um, dive into on those individual levels. But looking at those three P's um, and working within the context of the Agency of Human Services, how then do the top administrators advocate for and push and ensure that, you know, this this work at the lower levels is able to happen without repercussion. That is to say, how do they um, systematically shift from product to process and relationship in ways that allow that deeper, more relationally focused work to happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, a great question, because like, I think that this is it, it will look differently for every system. And what I believe is that there has to be um, a, a kind of inspired visionary leadership at the top who is willing to to sort of experiment and live with with a dynamic tension that exists between product and process right now there is there isn't a tension because it, it's clear that the priority regardless of the system is on product mm-hmm. it's clear that there's a, there's no tension whatsoever and i think there has to be that uh, a kind of inspired leadership that's willing to sit with that tension. And it's like, it's like learning how to drive a standard shift car. Like no one can ever tell you specifically what the balance of power, how to balance your, the pressure you put on the clutch and the accelerator that no one can tell you exactly how to do that. It's, it's something you have to experience. And I think that that is the metaphor I use for what it's like to try to find that balance between product and process to sort of experiment with it uh, and to at least to create a context where there is a tension because I said right now there is no tension whatsoever mm-hmm. uh, and and I just think it means changing this is part of the larger systemic change is necessary that it means changing how you measure uh, success 
or what you have as outcome. Because I think that if your if your census goes down, but the aptitude and the sensitivity of your workforce increases, at some point you will make up for that deficit in the depletion of your 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 client census. Mm-hmm. Because we have this rather myopic notion that somehow that again because we don't see the relational connectedness we see them hierarchically we the product is more important process so we don't see the relationship exists between the two but when you have a workforce that is that is unhappy or is overwhelmed or feel a sense of ineptitude or depletion because they can't quite meet families where families need to be met that will ultimately affect your product. Mm-hmm. It will affect your product. And so I do think it means investing in, um, you know, training for supervisors. So supervisors, for example, is mean looking at doing it, an audit of those nefarious P's and say, okay, what, how can we, how can we re, how can I work with HR to rethink some of what, what we have, what we have always treated as these uh, indisputable truths around what gets defined as what constitutes professional because all these are all these little these seemingly little things are the places that create the tension points and the high attrition rate uh, and the lack of belongingness the staff of color often feel in predominantly white institutions it's not one it's not one big thing it's a combination and compilation of lots of little things about um you know, what you wear, how you show up. And when we know that women and people of color historically have been surveilled and critiqued for for their appearance in ways that, that white men have never critiqued. Uh, think about Michelle Obama being criticized for having her arms out or Barack Obama wore a bait suit that was somehow uh, an assault on the presidency. Um, and, and so all these things get are so integrated into the culture of institutions that it, it is it is these these issues and create the kind of tension that people call or feel in those systems and then when you come in and if, and you're feeling these issues but then the priorities on product there's no place to talk about this there's no place to metabolize there's no place to process it mm. so it becomes like your problem and you have to adjust. And so you either you adjust or you leave mm-hmm. are the options. It almost, you know, as I'm listening to you talk about all of this, in particular, the symptoms that people who are feeling unhealthy, un- devalued in a system, um, when, when we're talking about people of color, these things, you know, we hear all the time in terms of workforce bar- burnout. It's almost like you're saying that the ideology of whiteness and using white values um, or um, emphasis of product over process or relationship aren't just harmful to people of color, they're harmful to everyone in the organization. Exactly. Imagine that's that. A, that, that that's a, <laughs> and, and that's why, and I always say that because I think if a white person needs a pep talk about why this is essential, it, the, the very point you just made, it is harmful to all of us. And what I say to white folks all, all the time, and particularly white leadership, is look, you can't help the fact that you were born white any more than I was born black. And so the skin we're born in is a life sentence. We can't change that. I can't, no matter what I do, I can't change the fact that I'm black. 
nor can my white counterpart. But what is not a life sentence is the subscription to an ideology of whiteness. That is changeable. And so while you cannot change your complexion or your skin color, you can work rather assiduously in rethinking and reshaping your ideology. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. And, and I think that's the kind of hopeful message that, that aspiring white allies need to hear is that uh, you don't have to be confined by the life sentence of your skin color. It's your ideology that uh, is much more critical mm-hmm. than the color of your skin. And I think this is also true for people of color because there are people of color who um, you can find high place people. You can find people of color in highly placed within organizations. And part of the trade-off to get there is that you have to sort of relinquish. You have to give up on who you are racially. Uh, and the extent to which you do that, you can be elevated in a predominantly white system because for all practical purposes, you are adhering to an ideology of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Uh, we're coming to the end of our time together, but I do have one, just just one last question. I mean, I have a ton of questions, but the one that is most important to me personally, and I'm going to be selfish here, is how do people of color, workers of color, protect themselves in the field of child welfare? Well, I think that one of the most profound saving graces for people of color over the course of time has been uh, community and relationships. And so I think it's absolutely imperative for um, workers of color in the system to find ways to connect with each other, to have a sense of community, uh, a place where you can come and share your verse of ain't it awful and to know that it's going to fall on empathic ears where where your experience can be held heard and held and it won't change it won't change the order it won't change the the dominant order out there uh, or at the workplace but what it will do it will retool refuel uh, and rebuild you to be able to go and and to cope with another day of it and so i think that's important but often in lots of workplaces that there's a fear that people of color have even about congregating with each other because that's subject to the criticism of white people, whereas white people congregate together all the time. But, you know, we shy away from it because we don't want to seem like we're antisocial or only talk to other black and brown people. Uh, But I think that sense of community is really important. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Ken. I really appreciate you being here with us today. If folks have uh, been enthralled um, confused, you're in your feelings about what you heard today, please listen to it again and then listen to our other two podcasts with Ken Hardy, Dr. Ken Hardy, that are going to focus on uh, working with children in the child welfare system and also with families on the topics of race and racism. Th- Ken, thank you so much for being here with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Field is produced by the Vermont Child Welfare Training Partnership and the state of Vermont. Our music is composed and performed by local band Brick Drop, and our sound production and engineering has been brought to you by Esmond Communications and Egan Media Productions. For Welcome to the Field, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and we'll see you next time.